Welcome back, everyone. Let me take a moment and welcome all of you joining us online, wherever you're at. Uh, I know there, there's, there's still people, for whatever reason, have not been able to come back from last year to, to in-person gatherings. Just know from our heart, we miss you, we love you, we can't wait for you to be able to come back and worship with us. We're glad that we have online technology, but it's not a substitution for what God is doing here through community and through family. So at the right time, when it's safe as possible, just know we love you and miss you, and we can't wait for you to come back. Some of you are out on vacation, it's first week of summer, uh, a lot of kids getting out of school, and so wherever you're at in the world today watching us online, we're so glad that you're with us also. We're beginning our grow season this summer. We have a number of classes and opportunities for you to go deeper uh, in your faith. John, one of our Life of Christ uh, teachers, is doing the book of Colossians this summer, and Michelle's doing some stuff. There's some excellent opportunities to go deeper in your faith. I'm actually going to do a men's boot camp Saturday or Friday mornings at 6 a.m. There's no sign up for mine. It's show up uh, right here in this room. And I'm going to be just teaching on what does it mean to be a man in Christianity in today's world? How do we become men of honor, men of character, men of integrity, men who keep our word, men who, who understand what it means to lead in the church because all of us have a responsibility to find a place and serve and make a difference with the gifts and talents that God has given us. And so I'm going to be meeting right here in this room every Friday morning at 6 a.m. So if that interests you, uh, be here this Friday. I'd love to have you be a part of it. We began the book of Ephesians last week. We've got journals available for you free of charge. If you haven't got one, pick up one of these outside on your way out. Uh, as always, the best notes to take is not what I say, but it's what God is speaking to you personally about the message that you're hearing every weekend. And then I've encouraged everyone to begin to bring a hard copy Bible with you to church. Uh, you'll thank me in about 20 years as you go through your Bible and you see the underlines and the highlights and, and notes that you're writing to yourself in the margin and you see what God speaks to you at different times and seasons of your life. I promise you in 20 years you're going to thank me that I encourage you to do this. If you've got a Bible, I want you to grab it and hold it up with me. Uh, we did this last week. We had a little declaration that we did. I, I stole it uh, through, from Pastor Joel Osteen. He's a friend of mine and, and just, just an incredible guy, like knows the word better than any pastor I know. He's got more scripture memorized. And he does this declaration at their church that gets them ready to hear the Word of God. I rewrote it this week for, for so we have the Coastline Edition. And so if you've got your Bible, uh, I, I, I'm telling you, last week I felt a difference in the room. People heard things differently. When you, when you invite God to show up in your learning and in, your, in, in hearing His Word being taught, you will receive more. And there was something about, we, we've learned this at the Freedom Conference. If you've ever been to our Freedom Conferences, we have declarations. And declarations position you to receive. And that's what this is. This is a declaration of position you to receive more out of today. So if you've got a Bible, hold it up with me. And we're going to repeat this together. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Holy Spirit, illuminate God's word taught today. And activate it in my life. In Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you ready to receive? 
We are in this book of Ephesians. I love the letter of Ephesians. The Apostle Paul wrote it. He spent time in Ephesus on his second and third missionary journeys. It's modern-day Turkey. He wrote it as a circular letter. So it wasn't intended just for one church. It was intended to be circulated throughout the Asia Minor area so that many different churches and groups of Christians could read it. And what I love about Ephesians is it is a master class in Christianity. If you want to know the essence of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ, the book of Ephesians, it's like the cliff notes of the entire Bible. It's a master class in doctrine and community. It's, it's a TED talk on Christianity is what it is. Uh, and, and it's a very short book. If you can only read one book in the entire Bible, uh, I would tell people, read Ephesians, hands down, because it'll tell you almost anything you can possibly want to know about the Christian life. I know some of you wish I could do a TED Talk on Sunday and keep my messages to seven minutes, but I said it's hard to perform heart surgery in seven minutes, and so I just, you know, it's just not going to happen. Uh, so don't get your hopes up. Let's dive in. This week we're going to look at a couple verses, verses 8 to 11 in Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes, with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. That's what we're going to be looking at today. Now, if you remember from last week, verses 3 to 14 in chapter 1 is the longest sentence in the New Testament, in the original language, in the Greek language. It's one long sentence. It's actually 202 Greek words in one single sentence. And I want to take you to the arc of the sentence. I want to take you to the point, to, the, to, to what the entire thing is about, is what I want to show you uh, today. Now, to figure out a sentence, you've got to find the subject and the predicate. And that's how you kind of figure out what the sentence is talking about. Well, we find it in verses 8 through 11, the subject and the predicate. Now, the subject obviously is God, and there's many predicates throughout the sentence. We looked last week how uh, it's all about everything God does. God chooses us, God adopts us, God redeems us, God reveals his ways to us. So, so it's God is a subject, and the predicate is everything that he does. Now, everything in the entire sentence, everything that he is doing, not just in this sentence, but in all of history, comes to this very purpose. Verse 10 is what everything in history is for. It's all leading to this very point. So I'm going to give you the outline of where we're going today, and then we're going to dig through it. First off, in these verses, what we discover, what we realize is there is a plan. There's a plan to life. We're not here by accident. We're not here by chance. This is not some you know, random uh, genetic mistake that happened because some molecules and atoms kind of combined, and all of a sudden we're here. No, no, there is a plan. There is a plan. Second, absolutely everything in history is part of that plan. And then we're going to find out, lastly, that Jesus is the point of the plan. So let's look at number one and dig into it today. There is a plan. There is a plan. We are not here by mistake. We are not here by accident. There is a plan. 
Verses 9 and 10, he made known to us the mystery of his will. So he had a plan according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. And this plan he put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. So in all of history, when all of time, when everything that has happened to the human race, when it reaches its fulfillment, when, it, when we reach the end time, when Jesus finally returns and sets everything right, and he, and he takes over and he establishes his rule and reign on earth, everything that we have been through in our life and everything that we have been through in all of history is, is part of that plan. There is a plan to all of this. Now, what this means, if you look at it honestly, is that Macbeth is wrong. I don't know if you've ever read Macbeth in college or if you've ever seen the play by Shakespeare, but what Macbeth says, there's a very famous speech in the middle of Macbeth that says this, life's but a shadow, this whole life, it's just a shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Life is nothing. It's just a shadow. It's just a mere existence full of sound and fury that means absolutely nothing. And that's one approach to history. In fact, there are a lot of people today who actually buy into this approach that there is no plan. Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist, the, 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 the academic scholar, uh, philosopher, atheist, he is also wrong according to what the Bible is saying right here. Because here's what Bertrand Russell says about the very same thing. Now, he's not as poetic as Shakespeare, but here's how he puts it. That man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving. So there's no point. There's no point. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Encouraging, isn't it? Like everything we've achieved, everything we've done, everything we've worked our entire life for, everything anyone else has ever worked for, it, no matter how noble and good or egotistical it was, means nothing because it's all going to be buried in the debris of a universe when this solar system expires one day. And only when you understand that and you live your life with unyielding despair that there is no plan can you actually build a life. At least he's being honest. You see, at least Bertrand Russell has a little bit more courage than the average person in SoCal who just lives their life like there is no plan. You see, the average person just kind of goes through life and they really don't, you know, I mean, atheist or what, they just kind of live life like there is no plan. We're here by chance. We're here by accident. There's just this random combustion of particles that got together and poof, here we are. But there actually is no plan and they just go on living their life, loving, surfing, eating, enjoying life, fighting for democracy, you know, fighting for justice. And yet they eat their breakfast every day with no despair at all. 
You see, what Bertrand Russell is saying is if you're honest that there is no plan, if you're honest that we're here by chance, if you're honest that, that none of this matters or means anything at all, then what that should produce, if you're honest about it, is unyielding despair because all of my efforts, my entire life, everything I work for means nothing. A hundred years from now, it won't be remembered. It'll be forgotten. And when the solar system ceases to exist and we're just you know, a, a planet that is dead and destroyed one day floating in a galaxy, all of our efforts, all of our human genius, everything we've accomplished as a human race will mean absolutely nothing. But the truth is what Scripture is telling us and what is absolutely true is there is a plan, which brings me to point two. Absolutely everything is in the plan. Everything that has ever happened in history is in the plan. Everything that happened to you is in the plan. And I'm going to explain that in just a moment, because not everything that happens in history was what God wanted to happen. Not everything that happens was God causing it or God creating it, but what God does is takes everything in history and he weaves it together as part of a plan that he is accomplishing. And that's what Paul says in verse 11. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan. So there was, there was a, a predetermination according to the plan of him who works out everything. So everything is part of that plan in conformity with the purpose of his will. Now the word purpose there in Greek is the Greek word boule, which means blueprint. Everything is part of God's blueprint. God is taking everything that happens, whether he caused it or not, whether he created it or not, God is taking everything and he's weaving it into a blueprint. He's weaving it into a plan that one day will come together under the fulfillment of all time. Now, what this does for us today is it brings up a dilemma. It brings up an age-old question that people have been wrestling with for at least 2,500 years that we know of. Because if you go back to Oedipus Rex, written by Sophocles, it, it, it wrestles with this question. Many movies today wrestle with this question, especially sci-fi movies. If you ever watched a movie that deals with science fiction and time travel, they all wrestle with the very same question, can history be rewritten? If somehow we could travel back in time and we could alter this event or that event or change this or change that, could we rewrite history? Or will you discover that as you try to rewrite history, the end of your effort is only helping something to happen that was written to happen? Or, or maybe like this, it was written that you would try to go back and rewrite history. That's the Avengers movie, by the way. If you ever saw the, the Avengers tril trilogy, you know, Thanos, he gets all these infinity rings, snaps his finger, and half of the world's population immediately dies. And so they get this master plan that if we can go back in, in time and we can steal all the infinity stones, then he won't be able to snap his fingers and we can change the outcome. We can change the ending. And all of their hard work ends in nothing because it ends up being what the plan was supposed to be anyways. And that's the age-old question. So here's the question that I want to pose to you today. Are we free? Do we have free will? Do we have the ability to decide our life, or is there a plan that we cannot escape? That's the question. Are we free, or is there a plan that we cannot escape? And the way the Bible answers this question is yes. Because the Bible is more nuanced on this subject than anything else. 
You see, human thought takes an approach of either or. It's, it's either this or it's that. But the Bible sees it as a both and. It's the debate of determinism and fatalism, of Calvinism and Arminianism, as we say in the theological world. But it's basically determinism. Is everything predetermined to happen the way it's supposed to happen? Or is it fatalism? You get to choose. You get to decide. Fate is in your hands. You see, scientific determinism says that if you think you have free will, it's an illusion. You don't have free will. The idea of free will is a myth. You're locked into your genetic code. You're locked into your family of origin. You're locked into your culture, where you were born, where you grew up. There's all these factors that robs you of free will, and everything is determined because your upbringing looked like this, and your genetic code looks like this, and your DNA looks like this. That's the story of Oedipus Rex, by the way. If you study Oedipus Rex, it was prophesied that he would kill his father and marry his mother. So what does he do? His entire life, he sets out on this course to, to kill the prophecy. He goes as far as he can away so that there's no way possible for him to fulfill this prophecy. And all of his efforts and all of his energy and all of his choices, all that did was lead him to the point where he eventually kills his father and marries his mother. He could not escape the plan. See, the point of this, the point of determinism is you are destined and your choices don't matter. It is predetermined. It was predecided. Now, on the flip side of determinism is fatalism. And this is where a modern uh, American pop culture of individualism takes place. This is us as Americans. We are fatalists. We are, we are individualistic as a society, as a culture. And it's summed up in the iconic line from one of my favorite movies of all time when Professor Brown says to Marty McFly, the future is whatever you make it, so make it a good one. There is no greater height of American naivety than that line. Because as Americans, we believe this. We believe the future is whatever you make it, so make it a good one. Now look, if you even wish your destiny is determined by your own choices alone, you are completely naive. Completely naive. If you had every one of your choices fulfilled, you would be in trouble. Let me give you an example. When I was 20 years old, there was, there was a girl in my life that I worked really, really hard on wanting to marry. It was all part of my master plan. Like I had a predetermined plan that this was supposed to be the one I was going to marry. And, 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 and it was not my wife, and thank God it was not my wife, but I really worked hard that this would be the plan. This is what I wanted. I prayed about it day after day and night after night that God, you know, but for whatever reason, I was not part of her long-term plan. She was my long-term plan. I was not in her long-term plan. And I look back on my life now, 25, 30 years later, and I thank God he did not answer that prayer. I thank God he did not give me what I wanted when I was 20 years old. It would have been a disaster. It would have been a nightmare for me. If God would... How many remember the old Garth Brooks songs? Come on, unanswered prayers. Sometimes I thank God. Come on, everyone, let's sing along. <laughs> for unanswered prayers. Come on. Remember when you're talking to the man upstairs, and just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean he don't care. Some of God's greatest gifts. Come on, you didn't know I could sing, did you? The worship team is over there laughing. My wife's laughing at me because I, I can't sing. That was a dream of mine, though, to be a country singer, and so thank you for, for fulfilling my my dream today. Here's the point of it. How many things 
that I wanted for my life really badly when I was 20 years old would have actually been good for me? 20% maybe? If I got everything I wanted when I was 20 years old, would that have been good for me? Well, let me ask this question. What percent, think about this, what percent of what I want for my life right now would actually be good for me? I hope it'd be a little bit more than 20%. But you see the point? 20 years from today, I'm going to look back and say, if God gave me everything I wanted when I was 45, it would have been a disaster. Look, if somebody told you that tomorrow... Everything you have ever wanted, every, every dream, every desire, everything you've ever wanted to happen in your life would come true. The best piece of advice I could give you is stay home. Don't get out of bed. Don't walk out of the house because it would destroy you. So you've got these two views. One view is life is fixed and nothing you do matters. There's no hope. It's all despair. The second view is your future is whatever you make, so make it a good one. Your choices determine everything. You can write your future. Now, anyone who is truly thoughtful should be full of fear at that. And here's what the Bible does. The Bible comes along and says about these views, both of them are wrong and both of them are right. You see, if you ask the Bible, are we free? Are we free or is there a plan that we can't escape? The Bible says yes. And you see it throughout Ephesians. Study the book of Ephesians. You have the first three chapters are all about how it's predetermined for us to become like Christ, that God foreordained and God foreknew, and it was predestined that this is what would happen. But then all of a sudden in chapter four, five, and six, you get this, your choices matter, and you've got to grow in Christ, and you've got to decide to follow him, and you've got to, you've got to work out his character in your life. So what is it? If it's predetermined that I'm going to be like Christ, then why do I have to choose? And Paul says, yes, you are destined and what you do matters. This is all throughout the Bible, by the way. You go to the Old Testament prophets. This is funny. Jeremiah 25, uh, God says, I'll summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord and I'm going to use them to come against this land and completely destroy it. God says, I'm going to use them to punish you and then I'm going to punish them for being used. Because you go a few chapters later, Jeremiah 50, this is what the Lord says, the God of Israel, I'm going to punish the king of Babylon. What is it? God says, I'm going to use them to punish you, and then I'm going to punish them for letting me use them. See what I'm saying? The Bible is so nuanced on this topic. It's not an either or issue. There's a both and here. Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches, this man, talking about Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. So God predetermined that Jesus would die on a cross, but you killed him. But you ki- so what is it? Did God predetermine for it to happen or did they kill him? Yes. Because he goes on to say, you crucified both the Lord and Messiah. Repent and be baptized. So what is it? Was it God's plan or was it their choice? The answer is yes. And again, it works this way over and over and over. One of my favorite, favorite areas because it lets us know that, that we are free, but we're also responsible, and there are consequences for the decisions we make. And everything that we freely choose out of our own free will all works together in God's perfect plan, his blueprint. He's going to weave it all together. Let me put it like this. Like if, if, if we were free to rewrite our future, would it be possible then? Think about this. 
Would it be possible for you, if it was possible to, to rewrite your future through your free will, through your choices, through your decisions, would it be possible for you to rewrite a future where Jesus doesn't return? See what I mean? How could you decide to do something that all of a sudden rewrites history where maybe you could go back in time and stop Jesus from being killed and then he never returns, he never becomes... A, it, it, it doesn't happen. You see, it's a both and issue. Paul does this in Acts chapter 27. And the angel of the Lord comes to Paul and gives him this prophetic word that everyone's going to live. They're on a ship. They're in the middle of a storm. The ship's going down. And Paul has this word. And Paul's got to be careful because he knows in the Old Testament, if you prophesied something that didn't come true, they would kill the prophet. So here he is telling everyone that, that none of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. So God told me we're all going to live. It's predetermined. God spoke. It's predetermined. We're all going to live. But then in verse 31, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be safe. So what is it, Paul? Did God decide everyone's going to live or is it their choice? Yes, it's both. You see, this is not an issue where it's 50% God and 50% us. The Bible says it's 100%, 100%. You are 100% responsible for every choice, every decision, and your behavior, and God is still 100% in charge at the same time. It feels like a contradiction, but it's not. Take, for example, light. For those of you that are scientists, you'll understand this. There's a seeming contradiction with light because light sometimes behaves as a wave and sometimes behaves as particles, which have mass. Waves do not have mass, particles have mass. So what is it? Is light a mass? Is it a particle or is it a wave? And the answer is yes. It's just the way it is. We don't fully understand why it is that way. It's just the way it is. And we accept the fact that this is the way it is. It's the same with the Bible. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so, so high are his ways above our ways. So what I'm saying is you can mess things up, but ultimately you can't mess things up. Because as bad as you mess up your life, Jesus is still coming back. Like you can't mess it up to the point where Jesus doesn't return. That's why Paul could be in a boat in the middle of a storm, and he was absolutely alert, understanding that all of his choices mattered, but at the same time, he was in absolute peace knowing that God was in charge. Only through embracing these concepts about what the Bible says about human freedom and the plan of history can you have this where you can be alert and at peace at the same time. You see, other religions in the world take an either-or approach to this. It's either one or the other. Secular thought takes an either-or approach. Only in Scripture do you find this nuance, this balance of a, of a both-and with these concepts. And if you embrace it, if you understand this, it'll liberate you. Have you ever read one of those, those novels that span generations of a family history, like the movie Godfather? For example, you know, you start with the Corleones in Italy, and then it goes all the way out in the Godfather 3 with the children and the grandchildren, and you've got this, this bridging of generations. Well, if you read the book of Genesis, the last two-thirds of Genesis is the same thing. You've got this, this generational history of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and there's issues. You get towards the end of it with Jacob and his 12 sons. Jacob was a terrible father. He played favorites. And you've got this kid, Joseph, who's spoiled rotten, and he knows it, and he knows he's the favorite, and he's rubbing it into all of his brothers. And then you've got his brothers who are bitter and angry and end up selling him to slavery. And what does God do with all this family drama and all this turmoil and all these problems? God hides himself, and he doesn't answer any of their prayers, and he lets everything in their family go wrong for 30 years. That's what God does. 
I mean, no, the Bible deals with reality. Like, God, show up now, and sometimes it's 30 years later before he actually shows up. See, the reality is no one learns about our deepest flaws by being told in a classroom or in Sunday school, but by being shown through some of the heartaches and the pain of life. No one learns that God is a loving God, a caring God, a healing God, until you've had to rely on Him through the pain and the heartache of life. You don't learn this in a classroom. There was a plan. Even though it seemed like God was absent, even though it seemed like God was non-existent, even though it seemed like God wasn't answering, there was a plan. There was a plan. Joseph, Joseph sold into slavery, and he, he tries to make the best of it, raises up to a powerful position, and then thrown into prison. It just keeps going from bad to worse. But there was a plan. And that's why at the end of his life, in Genesis chapter 50, he says to his brothers, look, you intended to harm me. Like your choices, your, your free will was to hurt me. But God took your choice and your free will, and he wove it together as part of his plan for what he was trying to do. God intended it for good to accomplish what is being done now, the saving of many lives. There was the plan. And all of the pain and all of the suffering and all of the heartache was part of that plan. Again, God didn't do it to Joseph. His brothers did it to him. God just took their free will and wove it together for his plan and his purpose for what he was doing. 2020 was a difficult year for many people. Very difficult year for me. We went through a lot of challenges. Some things through my own mistakes, some things through, through other things that were just happening. Some of it was just COVID in general. But can I tell you, through all of the pain of 2020, God used all of it. God didn't cause any of it, but God used all of it to allow me to become something I wasn't. I grew as a person in 2020. I'm a better leader. I'm a better pastor. I'm a better person today because of the pain. And it was stuff that I knew I needed to deal with, and I've known about it for years, but sitting in a classroom wasn't working for me. It wasn't enough for God to say, you need to fix this. It was when the pain and the pressure began to rise, it put me in a position where I had to grow. And that's what's happening here. It was all part of the plan. God didn't cause it, but God used it as part of his plan. And do you know what a powerful person you would be in life if you understood what Joseph is saying here? That, look, some of the stuff that I've been through hurts, and it wasn't fun, and I didn't enjoy it, and I didn't like it, and God didn't do it to me, but it was done. Some of it I did to myself, some of it other people did to me. And, and yes, it was meant to hurt me, it was meant to destroy me, but God took all of the broken and all of the pain and all of the hurting pieces of my life and he wove it together. It's part of his plan for something great to take place. So what is the point then? So there is a plan, we accept that. Everything in our life, everything in history is part of that plan, but what's the point? Jesus is the point of the plan. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. You look at the second half of verse 10, to bring unity to all things. So what he's doing is he's bringing unity. He's bringing things together, things that have been disunified. We have a divided America right now. We've got a polarized America. What God is going to do, his ultimate plan is to bring unity in all things, all things, in heaven and on earth, under Christ. Jesus is the point of the plan. 
He's going to bring everything under Christ. He's going to bring everything back to the lordship and the kingship of Christ. And this point right here is what the entire rest of the book is about. We're actually going to be dealing with this point every week for the rest of the series because it's the rest of the book. The point of the plan is God wants to bring everything under Christ, everything under the headship, the rulership of Christ. Everything that is currently at war is going to come together. Everything that is divided, every family that's divided, every, every, every nation that is divided, every continent that's divided. I mean, think about our condition right now. Our condition right now, all of our condition is we are falling apart. Everything is falling apart. Our cars are falling apart. And shops make a lot of money because our cars don't last forever. I mean, they break down. They fall apart. Our homes are falling apart. That's why Home Depot does so well. Because things are always needing to be fixed because they don't last forever. They're falling apart. Our clothes fall apart. That's why we buy new clothes. They fall apart. Our bodies, how I many know they fall apart? It's not the same as it was when it was 25. It's different today. They fall apart. They don't, they, don't, they don't hold together the way I would like it to hold together. You don't understand what I'm saying? Like I just need these things to hold together a little bit more, and they don't. They just like, they get looser. Society falls apart. That's why our nation is divided. Relationships fall apart. What's happening? Everything in life is going to more and more randomness and disorder. William Butler Yeats said it best the famous poet, he said, things fall apart, the center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, and no one has explained the second law of thermodynamics better than that. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Things continually run down to more and more disorder because everything in life is running down. Everything, everything is deteriorating. I heard a story the other day, they were interviewing a model in New York, and She's getting a little bit older, and she says, I'm preparing myself emotionally for the day that I'll probably be a size 10. <laughs> like she was devastated. Like, things aren't holding together in my life anymore, and, and one day it's, it's, it's going to get worse, and I'm thinking, you probably should prepare for more than that, because like, there's a lot of areas of life that fall apart. <laughs> Not just the physical body. But we have this, this, this the center cannot hold. Let me give you a really clear illustration of this. If you cook a chicken dinner, like a great chicken dinner, you get the right herbs and the right spices, and you pull that chicken out of the oven, and, and just the aroma, the smell of it, it's, it's almost like mouth-watering. You can taste how good it is. And it's just this beautiful chicken dinner, and you sit it on the dinner table in front of the family. And then you leave it at the dinner table for, let's say, two or three months. How many know there's going to be another aroma that begins to develop? It's not going to be the same aroma. And it's going to get gross, and it's going to get nasty, and it's going to get moldy, and maggots, and everything else. Why? Because the center cannot hold. Everything in life is going to more and more randomness and more and more disorder because the center can't hold. If you leave anything on its own, it will eventually, over time, fall apart. And this is where everything in life is going. Why? Why is this happening? Why does this happen to our bodies? Why does it happen to our car? Why does it happen to our homes? Very simple answer, Genesis chapter 3. If you look at the big picture story of the Bible, you cannot leave out Genesis chapter 3 because that's when everything fell apart. Everything that was held together fell apart in Genesis 3. When our relationship with God fell apart, our relationship with everything else fell apart because our center was lost. 
the center that held all things together was lost. That's why people today, they say things like, well, I don't know who I am. I'm trying to get in touch with myself. I'm trying to, trying to get in touch with my feelings. Why do people say that? Because when their relationship with God fell apart, their relationship with their self fell apart. Adam and Eve weren't in the garden walking with Jesus, saying to themselves, I need to get in touch with myself. I need to discover who I am. They had no, they had no question of who they were because the center held. But God is the center, and when God is removed, you remove God, you get chaos because anything else in that hole cannot hold things together. So how's God going to fix it? What's his plan to fix it? Well, this is the plan, Christ. Christ is the point. He's bringing everything together under the headship of Christ. This is the point. This sums it all up together. That's why Paul is saying he's bringing it all together in unity. He's summing it all up under Christ. It's like a great essay. If you've ever read a great essay or watched a movie where there's all these like competing ideas or or narrative storylines and plot lines, and it's all over the map, and they don't really seem to connect, and they don't really seem like they tie together. And then the last scene of the movie, the movie crashed a number of years ago, did this. All these random scenes and stories that were happening right at the end of the movie, they all crash together. And you realize everything was connected to everything else. And this one final epic scene pulled the whole movie together. That's what God is doing. He's going to pull it all together. He's going to bring it all together. That's who Jesus is. We were built for him. We will only find our fulfillment in Jesus. He will bring it all things together. And only when Jesus is king, that all, everything that is falling apart in the world will be brought together. Think about it like this. Why do you think we have so many legends in human history about a great king that will arrive one day and set everything right? The Lion King. When Simba comes back, he's going to bring order and everything is going to be right when Simba finally returns. Or King Arthur, the Lord of the Rings, all of it. There's this narrative storyline all throughout human history about a king. And when the king returns, the king will make all things right. He'll pull all things together. Justice and, and everything will be, all the wrongs will be righted and there'll be prosperity and food for everyone when the king returns. Why do we have that storyline in human history? Think about this. Look at the record of kings in human history. It's abysmal. Kings were tyrants. Kings were cruel. Kings were dictators. So why do we still, in the human heart, long for this storyline of a king to return? Could it be a memory trace? Think about this. Could it be a memory trace? Our genetic code going all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. When there was a king and everything was held together. And everything was right. And since Adam and Eve fell, we have longed inside of the human heart for a king to return and pull everything together. All of the disorder, all of the chaos, pull it all together. You see, we are fish. Jesus is the water. We're built for him. Loving Jesus and serving him is the fuel that we were designed to live off of. Everything in a car will fall apart if you put in the wrong fuel. And God loves us, and the world is falling apart because we lost him as the king. He was the center that held it all together. And when he disappeared from the equation, randomness, chaos, disorder began. 
But his plan is to bring all things together. The fulfillment of ages, the fulfillment of all time, all of history, to come together back to the place where he's king. That's why Philippians 2 says, at that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now look, I get the fact that a lot of us here are Americans and you don't like the thought of having to get down on your knees before a king. That's why we left England. And that may sound really, really oppressive to you. If you don't understand this, he, he says, with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery. Mystery. Every time Paul uses the word mystery, he's talking about the gospel. Mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. Mystery is the gospel. What is the gospel? Jesus came to die for us. Here's why you can trust Jesus as the king. Do you know why the cross was so gruesome? Do you know why Jesus' death was so horrific? The thorns, the nails, the spears. Remember the cat of nine tails, nine leather straps woven together with rock and bone and thorns and metal and glass. Do you know what the cat of nine tails was designed to do? It was designed to pull Jesus apart. It digs into the flesh and then it pulls the flesh off of the body. Let me end with this thought. Jesus was pulled apart so that all things could be brought together. Jesus was torn to pieces so that you could be made whole. Look, God could have showed up in Joseph's life and, and just spoke and said, you need to stop being a spoiled brat, but there had to be suffering for him to become what God wanted him to be. God didn't cause the suffering, but he used it so that he could become a man of integrity, a man of character, a man of honor. It wasn't enough for God just to show up in the world and say, you guys cut it out, live right. No, he had to come, and he had to suffer himself, and he had to die on the cross, and he had to take the penalty for all of our sins. He had to make us right with his Father. He had to get rid of all of our guilt and reconcile us with himself. And only when our relationship with God comes together, will everything else in our life begin to come together. You see a broken marriage, put Christ at the center and it'll pull things together. You see a broken relationship, put Christ at the center, it pulls things together. You see a broken life, you put Christ at the center, it'll start pulling things together. All of history is going to this point. Why not start now? There will come a day where every knee will bow. Why not make the decision to do it now? and see the chaos of your life be pulled together. Would you close your eyes with me for a moment? Father, in the name of Jesus, God, we accept today that there is a plan. My life is not a mistake. It's not some random chance I'm here. There is a plan. And everything in my life, even the painful, hurtful parts of my life, were all part of that plan. You didn't cause it. You didn't create it. But you're weaving them together. This incredible story bringing it to the point, Jesus, the point of my plan. That when I am pulled up under Christ and he becomes the king of my life, all of the chaos of my life is pulled together. All of the brokenness of my life starts coming together under the king. If you're here today, whether you're online or sitting outside, sitting inside, wherever you're at, if Jesus is not the king of your life, 
I'm going to invite you to ask him to be the center, to the king. When he is the center, he will pull all things together. When he's king, he will bring order out of chaos. If that's you today and you need to invite Jesus to be the king of your life, with eyes closed, whether you're online or here today, just, just put your hands over your heart just as a statement to God that you're inviting him to take that center place in your life. Just put your hands over your heart. And then I'm going to invite everybody here today to repeat this prayer with me to encourage those that are praying it for the first time. Let's say this together. Say, Jesus, today, I invite you to be the king of my life. I want you to hold center spot and bring order out of all the chaos. Forgive me of my sins. Thank you for my grace. I give my life to you. In Jesus' name.